Welcome to the Enterprise Design Podcast, brought to you by VMware Design. I'm Tushar Roy, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Laurel Byers. Today's episode is all about what it's like leading enterprise design organizations, the unique challenges and opportunities that it comes with. We have Beverly May, our brand new Vice President of UX at VMware today. Beverly is a recognized industry expert in product design, UX, innovation, and data-driven approaches. Her career has primarily been oriented towards enterprise product. Most recently, she was head of a global CX, UX, research, and innovation team at Allstate. Prior to that, she was in charge of a global UX product and research team at GE Healthcare. She also founded and managed the notable UX Awards for six years and has been a huge advocate and voice for design through a multitude of channels. Her experience as an enterprise design leader and evangelist, plus recently joining VMware as VP of UX, is why we are interviewing her today. Beverly, welcome. Happy to be here. (laughs) We're happy to have you here as well. Um, Awesome. So let's go ahead and get straight into the question. So um, first off, I think one of our our, our biggest interests, because we're not in the seat that you're in, right, is what is it like in the day of the life of a VP of design? Sure. Well, this is kind of like when uh, you ask a a child what their parent does and uh, they say, well, um, mommy's in meetings all day or mommy writes emails. Uh, (laughs) So uh, that is, in in essence, my job, (laughs) like many managers uh, uh, at its most fundamental level. Um, The role of the leader of a large design team is really to try and... um, have some uh, line of sight to the work that's happening as well as how to lead people. So the the team and individual's management standpoint of um, management. And and then, of course, there's the collaboration with the enterprise and the organization and and peers. So what that translates to is a lot of meetings uh, trying to work at a strategic level in terms of where the organization is going or uh, deadlines that might be coming down the pike, uh, as well as react, of course, to in the moment things that come up from within uh, the group. Um, I like to stay pretty close to uh, the work in the teams. So um, I try and meet with uh, folks in a more at a higher cadence and frequency, including people that are further um, down in the hierarchy that are within my group. Uh, In fact, I have an aim to try and meet with every person in the organization, although at the size of this organization, I don't know if I'll be able to do that um, on a regular basis. Uh, So basically a lot of meetings and a lot of emails is actually the summary. (laughs) Well, what are, what are sort of the challenges that you, you face as a UX exec? Um, usually? Uh, I think uh, the key challenges that I might face are just um, uh, the same challenges, frankly, that any design leader uh, faces, uh, usually around issues of what we call design maturity within our group uh, or our discipline. So we talk about UX maturity or design maturity in terms of 
how much an organization has adopted design within their uh, software development lifecycle or business processes and whether they consider design to be strategic and whether they plan for it or whether it's just a reactive exercise. And um, there's various design maturity models out there that um, you can easily find. I, I personally don't like the term design maturity because I think it's a little bit um, patronizing, uh, but nevertheless, it, it serves a purpose. So usually in any co company, and I think that um, VMware is no different, you're going to have pockets that of folks that see the value of design and prioritize it. And then you're going to have pockets and teams that may be a little more um, old school in their engineering practices and haven't worked with design before and um, may not um, see the value as much. And so you spend a lot of time focusing on how to evangelize the value of design and articulate the value of design and explain how we work uh, to um, be able to get design to where it needs to be within the organization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As design managers, Laurel and I spend a lot of time doing exactly the same thing, talking to our cross-functional partners and trying to evangelize the value of design. You, you did your MBA from Oxford, uh, Biv. Um, so I'm curious, from, from your knowledge and your experience, what do you think are the best ways to um, increase the mindshare of design across an organization? It's honestly many of the same arguments that you might make uh, at a product team level or at an engineering practitioner level. It's just you abstract out the arguments at a higher um, level. So uh, I think the framework that um, we're using here at VMware is actually the same framework that I used um, previously, which is it comes down to um, three pillars, one of which is uh, increasing uh, revenue uh, and uh, growing uh, the business. Uh, it's about decreasing costs through better efficiency, primarily software development and efficiency, but also, by the way, design efficiency. And um, then there's the risk mitigation -ish aspect, uh, which there's many examples in our industry, like Three Mile Island and others, where uh, lack of uh, effective uh, and usable interface design led to legitimate calamities. Uh, so um, you got growth, ops, and risk, and and you can then make the case uh, for how does that translate in terms of what design does. And, and so using those simple kind of baseline frameworks that are frankly business frameworks, um, tied roughly speaking to an income statement and how it's structured uh, or a balance sheet uh, is exactly the kind of thing that I think having a, an MBA helps with. So you're, you're trying to articulate the value of design to non-designers using the language of non-designers to understand. Um, with, and, and same thing, if you have, let's say, an engineering background, but you get into design, then it's easier for you to talk to other engineers because you already speak their language. So it's the same kind of thing. It's like translating our value prop to others.
Let's move to enterprise versus consumer, Beverly. From from your experiences at G and Allstate, what do you think are some of the differences in enterprise-focused companies versus consumer-facing? Yeah, well, so in this case, it sounds like we're defining enterprise to really mean B2B. Um, I, I think of enterprise more as uh, an issue of scale. So if you've got a company that effectively has one product, then your design team and design org is in is is relatively straightforward. You're you're serving the design and experience of that one product, or even a company like Airbnb, which might have other things going, but they really have one overwhelming product that's eighty to ninety percent of what they do. Uh, then you've got a focus. But the minute you become like an Uber that has Uber, but they also have Uber Eats and they also have this, that, the other thing, then you become um, a company where your your design team uh, needs to have these sub teams. And of course, that's the case for Adobe and Google and Microsoft and the list goes on and on and on. Um, they don't do just one thing. So um, to me, that's like where you start to think about needing to scale and structure your design teams in a little bit of a different way because you've got multiple products under the same business umbrella uh, as opposed to just one. Um, The differences between having a B2B versus a consumer-facing product um, to me is probably immaterial in... 2022 or 2023, uh, you know, consumer historically, of course, led the way in terms of creating exceptional UX and being more user centric. But I mean, that ship has sailed a long time ago and enterprise um, or B2B companies have long figured out that they need to catch up and up their game in terms of making their products also usable for their users. It might be a different persona they're serving, but I think the expectations are, are pretty much the same these days. Um, question with that, because um, I can understand like from a design team, we definitely are trying to reinforce that, right? Um, but oftentimes still in our day-to-day work, we'll come up against cross-functional partners who are, are very um, much of the opinion that they are different. And then that's why design needs to operate differently um, you know, in, in the process of developing products. How would you, I guess, argue against that? Well, I would imagine that those people are offering some version of, we are always did it this way, therefore we should continue to do it that way because it worked in the past. And I mean, that only works for so long. Um, we're supposed to be in a sector which is technology, which is fast moving and constantly changing. Uh, and in our company here at VMware, I mean, we've heard unequivocally in public and private forums that our leadership is focused on multi-cloud and SaaS. Um, By the way, we're not the only company in the multi-cloud and SaaS space. So the minute you are in a competitive environment and especially in SaaS where it's easy to sign up and it's also easy to leave, uh, then you are no longer tied to the enterprise sales cycle, which locked customers in. And that means you have to have a superior product and superior experience to attract and retain those customers. Um, So I would make the case that those folks that are saying that that isn't true 
are have a little bit their heads in the sand and they're not really looking out at not only where we're at now, but where we need to be as a business. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So like as for enterprise or if we're saying B2B, I mean from the B2B side of things when I when I say enterprise. Um, but do you think because of the challenges that we face with potentially being a little bit behind the consumer space and how focused they are on UX, obviously aiming to get to that point, um, is there a unique mindset or a set of skills that those designers need to have in their back pocket um, opposed to you know those designers who may have been working in the consumer space and potentially these things are already uh, developed into a pretty mature design practice. I don't think the foundations of UX make um, change at all. I mean, we're talking about user-centered design. The process is the same. Who are you designing for? What are their needs and goals? What are their problems? How can we solve for it? How can we optimize for it? How do we get the feedback to know that we're solving for that right thing? How do we get the feedback on our solutions to make sure they're working? How do we iterate? Now, the, the challenge is really just simply your personas are different. Your personas might be uh, more niche, more hard to reach. Uh, they might have niche skill sets and needs. It's certainly the case for us here at VMware where our personas are highly technical individuals and our products are highly technical. Um, so, you know, Joe Schmo off the street, you can't give them a $5 gift card at Starbucks and have them test our products. Uh, so you can't use some of the approaches that you might use in um, a direct-to-consumer or consumer-focused product in terms of recruitment for your persona. Um, but at the same time, there can be a benefit of that because from a UX designer or for that matter, anyone, um, we tend to um, project on our end user um, belief systems or needs and solve for belief systems or needs that represent us. And uh, I know uh, we've all heard the, you know, you are not your user. Um, when you work in enterprise, it's actually easier to wrap your mind around that because sometimes you truly are designing for end users that are definitely not you. Uh, and so it helps you to be empathetic and listen more and be uh, more clear about that audience group's problems, needs, and goals, and not mistake them for your own bias or your own needs and goals. Um, so I think it's just the complexity of the products and the different types of personas, but the process for user-centered design and, and, and the need to get feedback and testing and iterate and everything like that, to me, it's the same. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What are some, I guess you mentioned UX research, maybe needing to take a different approach when, um, when getting uh, more users to test with. What are some other, I guess, areas in the research um, space that you would say need to be approached differently to, um, to gather those kinds of insights? The main thing is just challenges in recruitment. Uh, yeah. So um, the example that I use and that I've talked about before is actually, you know, G healthcare during COVID. I mean, we, we are designing for niche um, medical specialties using physical and digital devices to perform complex medical procedures. You can't just send out a user Zoom survey to do it. And um, by the way, what do you do when you can't get that testing done because you can't literally can't enter the hospital site? And even if you did, nobody would want to talk to you because there's a global pandemic going on. 
So that was a great challenge in this kind of context of what do we do? And we kind of had to pivot and change our approach, which had been more on-site usability testing, uh, to say, well, what can we test remotely? Um, and by the way, do we need the NeuroRAD or whatever persona we were designing for for that product uh, to be the one to give us this feedback? Or is some of this just basic accessibility or usability questions that we're asking about color contrast or information hierarchy and things like that, that we might be able to get from other groups uh, and, and, and sort of triage, I guess, our research needs into, okay, this subset, we think we can ask pretty much anyone who's a medical professional. The subset, we think we can get from these medical professionals, but we can do it remotely. And then this much smaller subset we actually do need to do it on site in a um, you know embedded environment with the device, uh, and you know so we're going to have to temporarily hold on those questions or use our VIP list or our internal subject matter experts within the company as proxies, given the pandemic and our lack of access to end users to answer those questions. Absolutely. In fact, for VMware, we have been using. VMware Explore to do a lot of uh, design studios, which has really helped us recruit customers. Uh, let's move to talking about leading people, Beverly. How do you think it differs from uh, enterprise versus consumer, and especially around you know learning the technicalities of a product? As you've heard, I don't think it is that different. I think that enterprise teams should be working more like consumer teams. Um, I think there's a little bit of... Um, belief system, even within the UX groups that, oh, we're so special and um, it's so hard for me to get feedback on my product or it's not my problem or my job to do that because it's XYZ person's job or that happens in our, you know, testing group or something like that. Um, whereas I think in the consumer world, um, there's more of a attitude um, of having a end-to-end uh, product designer who is responsible for both the design, the interaction, and the user feedback. And then people get into these niche roles, especially in enterprise, where they somehow think that getting user feedback is not their problem. Um, so I am not in that camp. I think that UX without research is not UX. It's just design. And you don't know if it's good, bad, or ugly until you get that user feedback. And that's part of the role of the designer. The fact that it's harder in enterprise to get that feedback is not an excuse not to get it. Um, so I do believe that um, actually a big part of leading an enterprise or B2B organization in this day and age is to get people to adopt more consumer-based behaviors as designers and get back to basics that they need to own the end-to-end -end experience. They're responsible for it. And that includes getting the feedback and trying different options, et cetera. And, um, you know, taking ownership for the full kit and caboodle, even though they're operating in this environment of matrixed complexity within the organization. Yeah, that I, I can relate to that for sure. And I, I'm curious, like, what comes to mind with that is um, a lot of the teams, um, at least that I've been on, they don't have a researcher. Um, so how would you 
expect, I guess, the designers in those types of teams that don't have those niche uh, roles to operate. Um, they can still do research, but oftentimes it's you know somewhat bare bones. What's your perspective on that? I have many thoughts on this um, idea of quote research democratization. Um, for one, um, yes, it's the designer's responsibility if they call themselves a UX designer or a product designer to get feedback. In a perfect world, do they have an expert that can help them? Yes. If they don't have that expert, does it mean they can't do a best pass attempt at trying to get the feedback themselves? They can. There's plenty on the internet. There's plenty of courses. There's plenty of um, resources all over the place for how to set up a usability test, uh, how to do qualitative interviewing, how to um, set up a survey. Uh, there's also peers and others that could give feedback or QA anything that a designer might try and take on on their own. Um, in our organization here, we do have a sm two small research team that we definitely need to grow. Uh, and that group can provide um, Q&A advice and office hours and review any types of research that designers or design leaders are trying to spearhead on their own. Um, so there is that um, resource available. Um, from what I understand, a lot of folks don't take advantage of it. So again, it's about do you own and feel a sense of responsibility and proactivity about things that you are leading? Or do you sit back and say, that's not my job? Um, yeah. or it's too hard, or I don't know how to do it, so I'm not going to do it. Um, and obviously what we want to do is get people to feel a little more ownership and um, responsibility. Uh, like as a designer, and I'm just speaking for myself, um, you know, I, I do multiple approaches, not because somebody asks me to, because I, but because I have a curiosity and I, I want to try and think to myself and challenge myself, are there other ways to solve the problem? And then I have a curiosity to know which one is going to work well for the customer or my end user. Um, and what we want is, is folks to have that self-directed uh, approach to how do I solve this and how do I get the feedback I need and be curious and proactive enough to try and get it. And if they don't know how to do it, then get the help and support that they need, which there is some here. It's not as much as we need to have, but we're, we're going to work on building that. Yeah. It's like being resourceful, right? And not just accepting. Yep. I, mean, I think that's a learned skill through time too, especially like moving from a more junior position as a designer. I, it, it seems as though like one of the evolutionary points is being like, oh, I don't need someone to tell me to go do this. Like it is, it is my responsibility to actually be driving that effort. I think oftentimes that's convoluted, um, in convoluted, convoluted <laughs> in the um, enterprise space because you're around these very technical people. So you have to learn through time that oh, I'm also allowed to you know come to the table with my expertise, even though it might not be as technical as the ones around me. Essentially start treating every problem as a design problem, mm -hmm. right? And so, so that brings us to this maturity, UX maturity question, Beverly. I know you don't like using that word, but what what are some of the not so obvious values that you think that a more mature UX organization can bring to, the, to an enterprise product? Um, 
I mean, if we think about what design maturity is, it's just in effect trying to determine whether design is something that is being perceived as reactive and, you know, color and the wireframe, so to speak, or colors and fonts and styles, or is it more strategic about the overall product, workflows, value prop to the customer, strategy, um, clear understanding of who our audience is and how we're solving for them. Uh, and there's a lot of nuance to that in terms of what kind of tools you might have or where you come into the organization or what levels you're resourced in terms of numbers of designers to engineers and lots of other aspects of it. Uh, and so, you know, um, it's, 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 a, it's a whole journey. There, there are many facets to, to this um, in terms of what's not so obvious. Um, you know, I think that part of it's a show don't tell. So like, um, and this is, this goes back to what we were talking about before too, like an individual who is not exposed to design in a strategic context or never saw or experienced design in that way. Um, that is just from a point of view of ignorance, but you can't really fault them for that. That's just, hasn't been their experience. So how do you counter that? Like, you can't discounter that by being like, no, you know, but we're not valued, right? Like a lot of designers kind of, they feel like they're not, um, they're not valued and they have kind of a chip on their shoulder about it. Um, how do you, the way you counter that though, is a show don't tell, which is the same way, which by the way is design show don't tell, mm -hmm. show them the value, show them with a case study show them by sh by doing three concepts show them the steps you took out of the workflow uh show them the time you save for the end user uh, show them through the three things that you tested based on the material feedback you got from end users on which one performed better when you show people the value they will understand and you don't need to lecture them um they'll come around Absolutely. And in fact, um, we believe that by doing this, we would be able to slowly bring people from an ignorance to really believing in the value of UX. Um, I'm curious that while designers at the ground level can do this and one team at a time, how do you think can a design leadership really help enable this across the organization? Oh, there are many ways. Um, you have to enable the process and tooling and expectations around a show don't tell model. So for example, supporting case studies uh, and providing templates for effective case studies uh, or evangelizing case studies that you do have uh, or um, uh, evangelizing or even requiring design processes that in themselves will lead to these outcomes. So uh, last few orgs, um, I had various frameworks uh, at GE, we called it the UX 10 steps at Allstate, it was the UX eight steps. I don't know how many steps yet, it's gonna be a VMware, but it's gonna be some version. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the basic idea was this is a, you know, foolproof, step-by-step uh, -step formula, kind of like, you know, IDEO has their uh, five steps, uh, same basic thing. Like, this is how you do user-centered design. These are the steps, follow the steps. 
and follow the expectations and don't try and skip steps. Don't try and, uh, you know, and, and you can use this also with your, your counterparts in products and engineering to explain your process and also what value you provide and where and how to work with you. So it becomes just a, a level set uh, methodology uh, or approach that, that folks can standardize around and it helps a lot. So that's where, for example, design leadership comes in because you're giving the framework, you're educating people on the framework, you're holding people to the framework, uh, and that allows individuals to be successful and also deflects some of the organizational pressures that they might get from their counterparts who might not know about design, et cetera, or how we do our work to better understand uh, what we do and how it works. Yeah. What, what about, um, you mentioned like some practices and the different number of steps <laughs> that you've done in other organizations, um, but I'm sure there's some through lines that carry throughout those. So what are some uh, key areas that these um, processes focus on um, and have the most impact? Sure, well, uh, th basically the process for, for these, um, if we just go through them at a very high level, the first step is, you know, do you have design on the project, right? So don't come to us at the last minute and just expect us to have a resource just sitting there waiting for you. Um, you have to have planned for it. Uh, then, you know, do you have the basic requirements and uh, you being the product leaders uh, and outline of what we're trying to solve for so we actually know what we're supposed to be doing? Uh, and then are we doing upfront qual and uh, discovery research? So setting that expectation, then are we doing concepts? Are we coming up with three to five different concepts to solve the problem? Are we challenging ourselves that way as design leaders, not to just the first thing that comes to our mind, we're gonna go with it. Um, then are we testing those concepts with users and iterating on them? Um, once we've done that, are we giving the specifications and documentation necessary to our engineering and product teams in the format that they need and require uh, in a timely manner? Uh, and are we able to get um, access to the um, QA environment to make sure that what was instituted actually matched what we handed off? And then, you know, people often forget the most important part, which is the last step, which is when it's released, was it successful? Did it work as expected? Are you looking at the data? Are you looking at the metrics? Uh, did it perform as you thought it was going to? Uh, so to me, um, a true design leader is responsible for that complete process. And, uh, that's what it means to do UX design. Uh, and so that means we need the research and we need access to the data and the metrics. Uh, and we need to have worked with engineering and product to set the expectations on when our deliverables would happen and how that matches with their release cadence and the cadence of sprint and um, the engineering cycles for that product. Uh, and that they've had the appropriate staffing levels. Um, so there's a lot of aspects to it, but it's, it's not rocket science. Uh, it's just, we, we need to get out there and, and, you know, make a claim for how we do our work and, and do some education as to how this overlaps or does not with Agile or whatever release processes they're using um, on that different product. Mm -hmm. The company that you founded, UX Awards, how much of this was a challenge versus, you know, pre-plan? You know, was it was it a UX-led organization? 
So the UX awards, uh, so I had a consultancy for over 10 years called Oxford Tech, uh, which was actually a UX consultancy that I was running at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the UX awards uh, was a, was a uh, cross-organization, cross-industry um, effort to try and um, evangelize and define what exceptional UX is. So we were the first award that was focused on UX. Before that, um, awards in the industry were really ad agency awards like Con or, you know, the Webbies and things like that. Uh, and no one had created an award that was about UX specifically. Um, that same year, later that year, the Interaction Awards started their awards with MJ. So, uh, you know, and over time, many other UX awards popped up all over the place. And the big guns like Con started creating Interaction um, categories as well. So the, the need to have the separate UX awards kind of diminish, which is one of the reasons why we ended up stopping it in 2017, because there were then other avenues, uh, for honoring interaction design, uh, in different forums, but at the time there wasn't. So it started as a New York specific thing at the time I was president of NYC Chi, uh, and then I worked with the leaders of UXPA and IXDA in New York, as well as um, there was another group called, I think it was like uh, IA something or other. Anyways, and there was an Agile UX group. So there was all these, you know, UX communities in New York happening. And so, um, you know, we, we, we created this award initially to try and say like, hey, let's, let's, let's try and like honor the people who are doing this work because there really is no other avenue for them. Uh, And then it grew to become like an international awards program. um, And that's how it was run for the next several years. Nice. Uh, So uh, you mentioned that uh, there is no UX without research. So I'm curious that to take the company or the UX awards global in such a short term, what other things that you think uh, would you say was because of research or how much research did you use to uh, make changes and course correct? Hmm. Uh, Well, I think the UX awards, if you're trying to say the UX awards is a product, how did you apply user-centered design to growing the UX awards? That's an interesting question. Um, The UX awards is uh, was kind of a service and there are lots of avenues by which we got, uh, feedback from the UX community, which was our audience, uh, on whether we were going in the right direction or not. Um, since it is primarily something that was shared by social media and people interacted with on social media, then obviously you can use the metrics of what is your total addressable audience through social or, um, traffic to your website or number of tickets, uh, number of submissions. So we definitely tracked all of those things to see how we were growing, uh, and, uh, where we were growing. Uh, and we also did lots of feedback approach surveys. Uh, we also created an advisory board and, um, I relied on the advisory board to also provide input into what direction we were taking. Uh, and of course there were the judges, um, of the awards as well. Uh, so there were lots of different avenues by which we got feedback about where the awards were going and, uh, and 
you know, then people voted, of course, with their actual behaviors. Did they show up? Did they buy tickets? Did they submit? Did they visit the website? Um, did they sign up for our newsletter, etc.? cetera? Uh. <laughs> um, that, uh, yeah, I, that's, a, that's a lot to do too. And you're, you're like juggling multiple jobs, it sounds like at this time. It's not just this program that you're running. It was a lot of other things too. I, that's I right. Another... I was also teaching UX. So I taught graduate UX at Columbia and UC Berkeley and at General Assembly. So I was teaching, I had my consultancy and I was mm-hmm. running the UX awards. I kind of want to go back to, I mean, obviously you're a VP now. Um, there's a lot of interesting steps that I'm sure everyone has like a unique journey into those roles. And it's not a very prevalent role, right? It's something that's growing more and more in the design field of like CDOs and all that kind of stuff. Um what, when did you start shifting into focusing on becoming, uh, you know, the voice for design at a more executive level? How did you do that? Obviously, the MBA helped with that, but maybe going a little more in detail to your career path, at which point in those 20 years you started shifting, um, how you grew as a designer into, into that uh, more executive level representation of it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think my career trajectory mirrored the evolution of UX is a discipline, right? So when I started late nineties, there was no quote UX, by the way, you did, you know, web design and development, you hand coded your HTML pages. And that was like, you know, the dawn of the internet. Um, So that's how old I am, unfortunately. And, um, you know, from there, then people started to, um, uh, I went to grad school at NYU uh, in an interactive media program, ITP, and um, you know a lot of UX people came out of that program, um, and that was really about systems design. Um, I mean, that's really what we did. Uh, so interactive systems, and um, you know, and then I got various jobs. In New York, I was working at the UN, and then I worked for an educational software company called, um, at the time it was called Wireless Generation. Now it's um, got a different name, but anyways, and then I went to Rodale, and that's where I was leading UX and product uh, for uh, some of their uh, brands. So Rodale was a publisher in New York um, that's now owned by Hearst. So they did like men's health, women's health, runner's world. So you're talking about enterprise content management systems and truly information architecture, um, which is a a term that people don't use that much anymore. But since our industry really evolved out of HCI programs and information management with an old school idea of the internet as a vehicle for information publishing, in effect, there's still a role for this subset discipline, which is about um, how you how you create hierarchies of information and management information. And there's still publishing sites where it's still necessary to have that skill. And so working in a publisher like that is definitely very IA focused. Um, lots about templates and content management. But I had the same issues that many people still face today at like a mid-level of their career where you feel like, not being taken seriously or seen as strategic. I'm just looked at as the designer and I can't influence the product and I can't influence the roadmap. So I transitioned into doing more hybrid product roles that um, were product first and UX second, or they were equal if they were equal. 
And um, my role at Amplify was like that. My role at Rodell was like that. Uh, and that kind of transitioned naturally into me wanting to go to business school because even then, um, I wasn't actually driving the roadmap. Uh, so I thought that at the time um, that the only way to do that was to become a product executive. Um, but then, you know, the, in, the industry has also evolved. And so uh, what we would now call UX strategy uh, is really, uh, and the recognition that you can have UX uh, be strategic uh, you know, has all sort of organically evolved at the same time. So it was a fairly slow evolution. Uh, when I created my own consultancy, it was specifically to address this niche. So it was like business and product strategy and research. Um, and I did that after Rodale um, and, and did that for many years. And it was trying to do just this. And then along come McKinsey and a lot of others, and they start to build out their UX firms in-house and and now, of course, you know, 15 years later, it's UX is a critical part of these large management consultancies and others. And it's kind of like, okay, that's not a not um, under question anymore. But if you look in the rearview mirror, you have to remember that things none of that existed 15 years ago. That is that is profound, Beverly. Thank thanks again for your time and insights. You know, from importance of research and data to frameworks that help us better collaborate with cross-functional partners. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in into Enterprise Design Podcast. We are your hosts, Laurel Byers and Tushar Roy, and we'll see you next time.